It's the 23rd of September, 2016, and this is episode 309. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm joined by Stephanie Murphy. Hello. And returning special guest, John Ratcliffe. Hey. So, John, you're somewhat of a ambassador between the Bitcoin community, self-appointed, of course, between the Bitcoin community and sort of the Bitcoin core team. And last time you were on the show, we talked mostly about Lightning Networks and some ideas you had for improving them and, and for implementing them. And you've always had this way of talking about technical problems, but in a way that non-technical people like myself can understand, which I really appreciate. So today you had approached us and wanted to talk about Bitcoin scaling and the core roadmap and, and what you think about that. So welcome to the show. And I'm curious to hear your perspective as a bridge between the uh, Bitcoin community and the uh, Bitcoin developers. I uh, appreciate it. Thanks. So John, scaling is one of those things that I felt like we were going to see more movement on, and what I mean by more movement is some kind of meaningful solution. It seems like SegWit is kind of on the horizon, but that seems to be a kind of temporary measure uh, unless you go to this kind of uh, entirely off-chain vision where you're just using the blockchain as settlement. And I think that there are, are arguments in favor of that, but I'm kind of curious to hear what you're here to tell us. What what kind of is the broad vision of the core development as far as scaling and why why is it the right one? My feeling on the topic is based on the more I've looked at it, the more I've studied it. My background is in the computer video game industry. I'm not a cryptographer, reasonably well-versed software engineer, so my knowledge base is, is pretty broad. I do have experience with scaling when it comes to massively multiplayer online games. I was a lead developer on PlanetSide for Sony Online Entertainment. I worked on PlanetSide 2. I've been involved in other MMO projects, and I know lots of people in the industry, and we around morning, noon, and night talking about how we're going to scale to more users and how that's done. I think there's analogies there which are valuable that people don't understand. And when I began to sort of see the vision of what the core roadmap is moving towards, it makes perfect sense to me. It's like completely intuitive because it's very similar to the things we do in MMOs. So I was a bit confused, like, this is so obvious to me that this is the right way to do stuff. And some people who are software engineers, they get it and they're on board. And some people, including some very technical people, are going down a different path. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about, why I think the core's vision moving forward is the correct way. It makes the most sense, and it's the safest way for us to move forward. That's kind of what I wanted to get into. Well, do you just want to get into it then? Sure, sure. So first, a really quick preface. There's been a lot of poor communications, I believe, that I think that a lot of the sort of perceived crisis in Bitcoin over the last year has largely been fueled by some pretty big communications blunders. The core development team does not have a public relations department, and they don't have a good press person. And what roughly happened a little over a year ago when there was a proposal to switch to Bitcoin. Bitcoin XT, and there was a, a lot of censorship that happened, a lot of name calling that created a lot of bad blood that has never been healed. And people need to step back and realize everyone wants exactly the same thing. Everyone wants Bitcoin to be a huge success. They want their Bitcoins to be worth a lot of money. They want Bitcoins to enable people to do commerce and peer to peer. This isn't an issue where one group wants one thing and another group wants another thing. Everyone wants the same thing. It's a technical discussion of what's the right way to get there. And where core is coming from is they're evaluating a degree of risk and their perception of the amount of risk involved in raising the block size is not the same as another group of people. A large number of people, Gavin Andreessen was certainly part of that, but a whole a number of engineers have said that we can raise the block size substantially. I think everyone's in general agreement that a modest increase in block size, two megabytes, four megabytes, is largely safe. I think there isn't much disagreement there. But the question is, when do you stop, right? So is 20 megabytes too big, is et cetera, et cetera. And there's a different perception of the degree of risk. And in Core's view, raising the block size limit presents risk that is way too high. So 
in Core's view, raising the block size limit is a very high risk. And we've seen some things happen in the cryptocurrency space in the past year that I don't think everyone understands sort of how much we have to protect the Bitcoin network. I don't think it's been seriously attacked yet. And I think there is a risk that it could be seriously attacked. So basically, there is a different perception of the level of risk. And we know Bitcoin has survived at the current block size to date. No governments have taken it down. It continues to run. There are issues, obviously, with mining centralization, not enough nodes. Those are real concerns. But it is still operating and still functioning. If you raise the block size substantially, I'm not talking about a modest block size increase, but a substantial block size increase, there's a potential for risk that you could reach a point where Bitcoin nodes could only run in data centers or only run by large businesses. And unfortunately, that becomes a point of, of attack by by governments. The other thing is people would like Bitcoin to serve the whole world. The size that blocks would have to be to serve everyone on the whole planet or even a vastly larger population is far bigger than 20 megabits. It's it's massive. So I am of the view that you cannot just keep increasing the block size on chain forever and you can't do it safely. That is to me seems to be where core is coming from. They're extraordinarily conservative. They're very protective. The analogy that I've heard used many times before, and I think it's totally apt, which is changing the Bitcoin software, which currently holds $10 billion worth of value, is analogous to trying to repair an engine on a 747 while it's in flight with 200 passengers. That's very risky. You don't do that. Everyone goes, oh, 20 megabytes are fine. I did an experiment. Works fine. Don't worry about it. Maybe they are safe, but you don't try that on a live blockchain holding $10 billion worth of value. I, I think the level of risk, which is acceptable, is extremely low. And there's a lot of conspiracy theories running around about members on core. There are no conspiracy theories. They've made their rationale quite clear and quite obvious up front. They're operating out of a degree of extreme conservative conservatism and being very risk intolerant. And again, some personal background. When I first started in my career as a software engineer, one of my first jobs was writing software for medical applications and talk about risk intolerant. If my software had a bug in it, it could lead to a doctor making a wrong diagnosis. A patient could die. That's very risk adverse software. Um, if you look at people who write software for airplanes, every single line of code that has to go in is reviewed by committees. It's, it's not a pleasant place to work as a software engineer, but you understand why they do it because you can't change this code. Software uh, is very complex and it has kind of a butterfly effect where you can make a change which you don't think has any problem. And a hundred other programmers can look at it and go, oh, that change has no problem. And then you go and deploy it. And there's like a butterfly effect where it'll interfere in a subtle way that no one ever could have saw or predicted, no matter how much they looked at the source code and bad things can happen. And quite frankly, in recent history, this happened with the DAO. The DAO had a subtle bug, which even after many people had reviewed it, still was allowed to be approved and went out. And we all know how that story ended. I think that was an abject lesson for us about the risk of making changes to the main network. And that's kind of, to me, is where Core is coming from. I think that that is justified. Some people think that's being overly cautious, but I don't think we should be doing experimentation like that on chain. So that's kind of where I've changed my view. The other reason my view has changed is over the summer, there was a cryptocurrency related conference in St. Louis and I live in the St. Louis area. So I, I was not going to get on an airplane, fly halfway across the country to go to a Bitcoin conference. But when I was right here in town and I could just drop by for a day, I thought, why not? So I went to the conference. It was called the Distributed Trade Conference, and it was a conference dedicated to using blockchain technology to solve real-world business problems. It was very, very, very eye-opening for me. It was extremely well attended. Many industry people were there. And I went to some sessions where people were describing how their inventory processes work today. So even in the year 2015, 
people are still handling invoices manually. They're creating paper trails and requiring people to sign things and approve things. And there's opportunities for fraud and waste and errors along the way. And what these people were at the conference were proposing how they could take something like a receipt or, or inventory request and digitize it on a blockchain. And from that point forward, it can be tracked every step of the way. And they weren't doing this because they were wild-eyed, doe-eyed dreamers wanting to use fancy, cool new technology. They were doing it to fix horrible inefficiencies that they have in their systems today. And quite frankly, were they able to switch to these systems, a lot of people would lose their jobs because there's a whole lot of people who have jobs doing these manual steps and manual processes today. But that's the way efficiencies work. So while they were presenting this, everyone at the conference said, well, there's no way we're using Bitcoin. It doesn't scale. It's way too tiny. We have millions and millions and millions of invoices or stock tickets or, or things that we want to track, uh, patient records, et cetera, et cetera. So they were at that time exploring a number of different blockchain opportunities, but they freely said that if Bitcoin could support a higher transaction volume, well, why they would love to use it. And what I came up away from that conference left are going to talk after talk after talk is that if you make a network like the Bitcoin network capable of scaling to hundreds of millions and billions of transactions, and those transactions only cost five cents a piece or 10 cents a piece, people aren't going to be using that to buy a cup of coffee or a stick of gum. It will immediately be consumed by stock traders, by businesses. They would use that cheap space instantaneously. I had no idea until I went to the conference just how strong the demand is for a public worldwide blockchain, permissionless blockchain. It's huge. And if we could support hundreds of millions, billions of transactions, it wouldn't be for monetary use cases if it's inexpensive. And that was very, very eye-opening to me. John, I really like the analogy about working on a 747 in mid-flight. That really made me cringe. Um, <laughs> and also, that's a very good point about the demand for cheap space and the potential for industry to sort of almost flood the Bitcoin blockchain if it could handle that capacity. So what do you think the ultimate outcome is going to be and what do you think it should be? Do you think there's going to be action on moving forward with increasing the block size or implementing other solutions? Or do you do you really feel like it's stuck? And, and what do you think should happen? So there is a solution and people from Core have been talking about it for a year, which is scaling should happen on additional layers. And this is the thing I was referring to when I said there are real clear analogies to massively multiplayer online games. So to give you an example of how that works, World of Warcraft, I don't know how many users they've had. I think they've had nearly a million users at some point. There is not one network that supports a million users. They can't scale to that level. Basically, when you run a server, a server for a computer game, every person who's connected, every time they move their character, make a request, it's a constant stream of data from every single person who's playing that game and the server who's dealing with the logic of the game and interaction and so forth. That can't scale infinitely. Let's say that you put a, a low-powered computer and it can support 100 players at a time. Well, okay, let's get a more powerful computer. So you get a computer that's twice as powerful. Now it can support 200 players. But you can only get away with that so long. You can't suddenly magically get a computer that's a thousand times more powerful if you want to support a thousand times more users. So there are different strategies of how one scales to more and more and more demand. And we don't scale by just making one network bigger and bigger and bigger. We scale by breaking the network into smaller parts, each of which is dedicated to solving its own problem. This is how scaling is solved in many industries. I'm just referring to computer game industry because it's what I'm most familiar with. So when you're playing a game like World of Warcraft, when you log in, you're speaking to a login server. That server's job is to do nothing but handle people logging in and their credentials. That's all that server does, period. And that server can sit there and service and service login requests. And if they need to have more than one login server, they can spin up more servers and more servers. Once someone gets past logging in, they're then dropped into the game after having been fully authenticated. Well, in an MMO, the game worlds are really, really huge. So if someone drops into one part of the game, 
and someone else drops into another part of the game that in the virtual space is you know halfway across the the continent they're not on the same server they they're not interacting with each other their movement packets aren't interacting with each other so they're actually interacting on two completely separate computers but let's say the game mechanic allows them to say in send instant chat messages to each other well those happen on a different server which is the chat message server which can handle sending messages around as you move through a world in mmo as you're walking along you're constantly being transitioned from one server to another server to another server you never know that it happens it's all invisible to you you don't know what the underlying architecture of this thing is that makes it all work. Another thing that we do sometimes in servers, many, many multiplayer online games, you go into a room or an area, and there's a distinct transition as you move from area to area. Every time you're transitioning, you're usually swapping to a different server, and you don't realize that's happening. However, there are many open world MMOs where it's just one giant huge world and there are no obvious or clear transition points. Some of these MMO servers actually have technology where you can be standing somewhere in the game and someone else can be standing two feet away from you. And that person two feet away from you is on a completely different server than you are. And there's some pretty wild and involved communication that occurs to make sure it looks like those two guys are in the same space in the same world. So these are all the kind of tricks and techniques that MMOs use to scale to massive numbers of players. And they don't know when they first launch an MMO, they might only have 10,000 users. And that requires a certain server configuration. Oh, the game's very successful. So now we have 100,000 users and it grows and grows. In the early years of MMOs, this was all new. People didn't hadn't dealt with the, the level of scaling. I'm sure you've heard horror stories of MMOs launching, all the servers crashing, nothing working. That's because they didn't know how to solve scaling. Today, we've got you know decades of experience at it, and people launch MMOs nowadays, and they're generally fairly, fairly robust. Uh, but even with Pokemon Go, which launched a few weeks ago, I heard stories of the servers being overwhelmed because even they never predicted how insanely successful it was going to be instantaneously. And those guys, I feel bad, sorry for them, but they have been struggling and rushing and rushing to re-architect their server software so that they don't roll over and die with that level of demand. So these are the strategies and techniques for how one industry solves scaling. And I am of the opinion that analogous techniques are how we need to solve Bitcoin scaling. And it should be done via multiple layers. The only thing that matters is that everyone's choosing the same token. As long as we're using the exact same token, does it really matter that much what network you're on? just so long as the token is bound, fixed to Bitcoin. And that is, I believe, and I can continue to discuss the technical ways that we can accomplish that. I have a couple of questions for you, John. Well, first of all, I like the comparison to the MMO world and how what solutions they use to handle these problems of, you know, keeping up with the user demand, basically. We talked at the beginning of this show about the lack of nodes on the Bitcoin network. If there were multiple layers on the Bitcoin network, would it divide the already sparse nodes? Would they basically be, there be more stress on the nodes or would one node kind of be able to handle multiple layers or like how would that work well so the the specific proposal that i'm making is so the first thing that was discussed about a layer two solution for scaling was the lightning network bi-directional network bi-directional payment channels that is a very cool piece of tech but it actually doesn't fundamentally help a great deal with scaling and that for a long time that concerned me. Uh, like, yes, it's very cool. It's a cool piece of tech and you can do lots of microtransactions on it. But at the end of the day, it does nothing about how do we get 50 million, 100 million, way more people using Bitcoin. And the answer finally came to me, which is sidechains. And sidechains are essentially no different than an altcoin. We have hundreds of altcoins. We have lots of experience with people spinning up altcoins, altcoins with different rules, different confirmation times, different proofs of work. Some have succeeded, some have failed, some have attacked, some have survived. Uh, look at the Litecoin network. It's been around for years and years and years. And to my knowledge, it's going strong. So 
the only reason we can't use Litecoin as part of the Bitcoin scaling solution is that the Litecoin token is not the Bitcoin token. But if you create a two-way pegged side chain, you're dealing with the same token. So the idea is you can spend just as when we're in an MMO and we spin up a new server when we have new demand, we can spin up new side chains. And the side chains can have different confirmation times, different proof of work. They can have different block sizes. They can have different rules. Maybe they don't want replaced by fee. Maybe they want different features. The idea that, like I was talking about, industry wants to do inventory management. There could be a side chain that's only used by people who want to do inventory management. That's the only people who use that side chain. But the key point is that the value, the token, is always pegged to Bitcoin. And the technical details of how you spin one up, like I said, it's fairly analogous to how you spin up an altcoin with one caveat. Most altcoins, when they're spinned up, they produce a block ward as an incentive for people to run it and run nodes and so forth. Well, you can't spin up a sidechain and have it mine new Bitcoins. Only the Bitcoin network can mine new Bitcoins, period. But what that sidechain can do is collect transaction fees. Now, I don't think many people are proposing we have no fees whatsoever. They just want to be able to do their transactions and have the fees be relatively modest compared to the size of the transaction. So if you spin up a sidechain that's dedicated to doing low value, your mythical cups of coffee transactions, it's very popular. Let's say it's churning away and it's doing uh, 3 million transactions a day. Well, transaction fees alone are, are quite substantial. It's a decent reward, and that would motivate people to run nodes and verify and mine and verify that network. So incentivization of nodes. Incentivization of nodes is the challenge, and whether you incentivize them with fees alone, there is nothing technically keeping you from spinning up a side chain that has two tokens. It can have the Bitcoin token that's pegged to the value of Bitcoin. It can have its own internal token. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it's it's with you can certainly try it. Yeah, it does. It makes sense to me, but I'm just thinking like from the user's perspective, if we envision a future world where Bitcoin has multiple layers to it and the average user who doesn't have much of a clue about the technical stuff, would they have to know like sort of which layer to do their transaction on or would it like automatically go on to the right layer like how much does the user have to be involved because when you're in an mmo you're not like saying okay well i'm gonna go into this room in the game that means i'll be on that server you you just do it and it happens magically without you having to care about it right yeah no it would be totally invisible to them and this is actually not that technically difficult so let's look at the lightning network which we discussed you know, on a previous podcast episode, the Lightning Network, very cool, interesting piece of tech, but integrating that into wallets and payment providers is insanely technically challenging. It'll happen because it's a very cool piece of tech and a lot of people want to make it happen, but it's not easy. But if you spin up a side chain, it is insanely trivial. All a side chain is is an altcoin, but the token is pegged to Bitcoin. We have already hundreds of altcoins and we have wallets for all of them. And what we don't have yet is a wallet which synchronizes to not one network but two networks and lets you interact between them. It's not very technically difficult to write such a thing. So a wallet which can synchronize to multiple networks and keep the actual business, the whether you're on this side chain or that side chain or that, it'd be utterly invisible to the user because the user doesn't care. All the user cares is that they are operating in Bitcoin and that is the token that is involved. Doesn't mean they can't go to preferences, settings, and you know do some advanced options if they're a power user, but to the average user, they should not know nor care any more than when you're on, when you're playing a game of World of Warcraft and you walk into another room and you just got silently transferred to a completely different server and had no idea it even happened, in the same way, no one should know this should be completely invisible to them. It, it's also much, it's not that technically difficult. It's, it's, we have a lot of experience now with altcoins. We've, we've developed many years of experience with altcoins. We know the ones that work, the ones that fail, why they work, why they fail. It's just people need to understand that when you create another layer, but that layer operates on the Bitcoin token where the value of the 
token is pegged, that you know that operating with this is Bitcoin, that it's secure and safe, then they don't need to be concerned. That new layer just becomes Bitcoin. And the other thing I wanted to mention is this is standard operating procedure in software engineering. When you write networks, Networks are composed of layer on top of layer on top of layer. In fact, right before this, I was working on my job and my regular job. I'm working on video games and I'm working on audio. In this video game, I'm trying to find a bug. There's some garbage audio being played. So a bad sound is being played. And I'm trying to figure out where that bad sound came from. There's audio layers on top of audio layers on top of audio layers. This is kind of how software engineering tends to work. You don't make a single one-size-fits-all layer that can do everything. You break the problem up into smaller pieces, and each layer is dedicated to solving just that problem and only that problem and very, very well. Things to understand that different layers can have different risk profiles. Just like we said, we wouldn't want to change out an engine in a 747 as an analogy for the Bitcoin network holding $10 billion worth of value. If you spin up a new side chain, People are going to naturally have questions. How safe is it? Is my money safe on that side chain? How do I know that side chain's not going to hack? Yeah, I would wonder about that. <laughs> right. Well, that side chain will not contain $10 billion, Stephanie. The first time you start up a side chain, how about we put 10 bucks on it? Let's see how that works. That sounds like a good place to start. Yeah, that's about the level I'm comfortable with. Okay. And then once everybody's been using it for a while, let's try a thousand. And and the point is, is each side chain can have a different risk profile. You know, it has a different security model because not everyone needs the same level of security, but the core Bitcoin network needs the most level of security. And I would make a comment about sort of right now, Bitcoin has a $10 billion market cap. That's not that's significant, but you know, on a world global scale, we also know it's it's kind of small, right? I mean, if you look at how many U.S. dollars there are, we're we're you know one zillionth of zillionth of one percent. Governments have not really, state actors have not really attacked Bitcoin that hard today, and the reason they haven't, one is it's not a big enough concern to be worth their time and effort. Two. Right now, today, to use Bitcoin largely requires on-ramps and off-ramps. People need fiat. They might hold Bitcoin for investment purposes, but you're not going to go buy your house in Bitcoin easily these days. You're you're, you're not going to make your large purchases easily. People need to exchange fiat to Bitcoin to get in, and they need to exchange Bitcoin to fiat to get out. And every place that that occurs, the government has a pretty good grip on the level of know your customer identity stuff you have to go through to get an account on Coinbase these days is crazy. Uh, try go on local Bitcoins and try to exchange a million dollars worth of Bitcoins. Good luck, you know. So the, the business of getting in and out is a choke point that the governments of the world have a stranglehold on pretty good right now. So my guess is that's why they don't perceive Bitcoin as too big of a problem yet. They think they can regulate the endpoints and they can. However, What happens if Bitcoin becomes really successful? The thing everyone wants. They don't want a $10 billion market cap. They want want a a $100 billion market cap. Right now, it doesn't really matter because the transaction capacity is so low that there's very little actual commerce happening on the Bitcoin network today. But what is the goal of everyone who's a Bitcoin supporter? They would love things like Open Bazaar to be the wave of the future, that people stay in Bitcoin and never convert to fiat. If that ever occurs, the governments of the world are going to have a serious problem with Bitcoin. Because they are going to lose their ability to track it because people aren't converting to fiat anymore. And I don't think people are necessarily paranoid enough or concerned enough about the security model of the core network. And if you want to understand why core is doing the things they're doing and why they don't want to raise the block size and why they're being seemingly so stubborn, it's because their underlying motivating factor is keeping Bitcoin safe for the future. And when you hear them make comments like the block size is already too big today and some people go, what? 
they're kind of right, right? Like, it, what would be the world's safest Bitcoin? Well, what if instead of a, a one megabyte block size, we had a, a, a one kilobyte block size? And what if you could run the entire network on a Raspberry Pi or something, or a grain of sand, right? The easier it is to run the network anywhere and every place, that is our defense against the state trying to shut it down. But as Bitcoin becomes more centralized and there are fewer and fewer nodes and they're more concentrated those are incredibly easy for governments to intercept and shut down you know they just start telling isps they just it's they they have a lot of ways of attack the only way to keep it safe is to spread it everywhere far and wide so it's a sort of a slippery slope you're like well we could we could raise it to two megabytes what's the harm well it's it's probably fine oh we could raise it to four megabytes ah what's the harm slippery slope and you can't do that forever and every time you raise it a little bit you've knocked down its ability to be decentralized a little bit so that to me is the motivating factor and i don't know if everyone sort of recognizes how serious that is and the reason i wanted to talk today is right now there's an effort to actually fork bitcoin there's one group of people who would like the block size to be bigger. There's another group of people who are happy with the block size today. This all what happened with Ethereum, where after they had a fork, they ended up with two tokens. And some people live on the old token, and some people live on the new token. And there you go. That can be done. It can happen. I would argue that's not desirable. I think it would create yet more confusion and more bad press and more chaos and disruption. And all of the energy, both technical and intellectual and in the community that's being invested in trying to make a fork, that energy could be focused on making a side chain that has every single wish list item that those people want. And in fact, it's even easier. And there already is an existing functioning side chain that's open source. You can go and fork it and start working on it right now. And people who've worked on that side chain are happy to work with others. I don't want to name names because there's been too much about getting into individual personalities, but I've spoken to a number of people, both on core and on sort of the quote-unquote big block size camp. And what I'm hearing in personal one-on-one conversations is a general agreement that if you have a different security requirement, sidechains can be part of the scaling solution. You make a sidechain that is dedicated to, say, solving the cup of coffee. It's the cup of coffee sidechain. It doesn't have $10 billion worth of value because people aren't buying $10 billion worth of cups of coffee. And it is dedicated to just that. Maybe it's not as secure as the Bitcoin network, but that's okay because the only value people have on it is sort of pocket money. And it should be able to be reasonably secure and will grow secure, more secure over time because as transaction capacity increases, transaction fees increase, therefore people are incentivized to secure that network. So I would really love to have everyone working in the same direction, which is this multiple layer approach. And let's solve the layers we need. Okay. So John, I hear you talking mostly about the long term here. And I think that that's an important perspective to have. But it seems like there is an immediate term and a near term and even a medium term potentially that this perspective kind of throws under the bus. So let's talk about sidechains for a second. So basically what you describe with sidechains is an altcoin that does not have the ability to fund itself. Is that right? That is that that could be the case. It could be funded through transaction fees. Through the through the conventional mechanic that so far altcoins currently exist, right? If I create an altcoin, then part of the that is that I get the token and that I get to determine what happens with that. It can go to miners. It Correct. could be okay. So so then in the use case you're talking about there, like I've often thought that it makes way more sense to launch a new blockchain for one of these purpose-specific kind of uh, applications where you've already got the stakeholders on board. You've already won the battles of adoption effectively, uh, whether you're doing that by you know get just having a consensus before you actually roll out the project or by prototyping on the Bitcoin blockchain while you're small and then at the point that you have to scale, just moving on to your own thing. And I think that you know, to your plane analogy, it's more akin to like loading the plane with with, with your customers, right, or your passengers while it's on the ground rather than launching the plane and then trying to get them into the plane while it's in midair. So, so in some circumstances, that seems like it makes a lot of sense, but it's really for only things that can already pay for themselves anyways. 
So is that kind of the use case that that you think that this uh, scaling solution is a good fit for? Like you've got like uh, an example we've been looking at is if you had crowdfunding rewards that are turned into uh, tradable tokens, cryptographic tokens, um, and you had a bunch of different crowdfunding platforms that all wanted to operate essentially their own blockchain, then you could have those be the stakeholders in the system for this specific side chain. People could move Bitcoin into it and they could use this specific side chain that's being secured by the particular stakeholders using one of a variety of different ways to do that. And then you've kind of got the best of both worlds. You've got the Bitcoin token in there and it's being secured by a method that doesn't require another token because the people who are securing it are the stakeholders who benefit the most from its existence. Right. That's a way. Another way is, you know, you can spin up a side chain. That side chain can not only be pegged to Bitcoin, it can have its own token as well. And you can create whatever sort of funding mechanics that make sense to you. So I, I, I'm not necessarily proposing we do it this way other than to say that a side chain with properties that meet the needs of a specific group is a way to service the community. Okay, so you also mentioned that it's very easy to move back and forth from Bitcoin to a sidechain. How would that work? They are different networks with different, I mean, so the token would be different. So it's a process of locking it on one and then having that create or unlock a token on the other. So would, do you think that actually would be seamless or would it be like send to this Bitcoin address and then, t- you know, like a shapeshift process? Yeah, it would be like a shapeshift, but the user wouldn't see it. It would be invisible to them. And it is the same token and from a value perspective. I mean, some people take a different tack on that, but I believe that over time when people, it's the same thing when you're transacting, it's really no different than with a lightning network where you're training signed signatures and you're treating them as if they're as good as Bitcoin, right? The, the, the psychology is, you know that this is pegged to value on the blockchain, therefore I can treat it as the same as if it was on the blockchain. Now, I realize that day one, no one's going to buy that. But over time, as faith in the network grows and the network is is stable, now it's day one, you don't move $10 billion of Bitcoin to some layer two system. You move a small amount and over time it grows and people begin to trust it and and realize it's not going anywhere. And But I don't see why people need to perceive the token as being a different token because it's pegged to Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. It's just a question of whether or not they have to be aware of the the transition, right? If the transition is mass, then obviously the, to them, it's effectively the same thing. If not, then it's obviously something different. It just represents the same thing. So from a scaling perspective, it seems like the vision here is that at the point that a layer two grows large enough, you would see a layer three potentially, something that bases and kind of anchors into the layer two, or would you just see more layer twos? The layer two layer three terminology doesn't really map well because basically it's different networks serving different communities. So whether you want to call that two, three, four, five or whatever. Yeah. So I, I can uh, clarify that. Okay. So let's assume that we have a music specific uh, side chain that's created that anchors into, into Bitcoin, right? Uses Bitcoin, but it's music specific. The music specific uh, side chain grows to the point where it wants to split into four different subgenres. You know, you've got your country uh, side chain, you've got so do those still anchor back to Bitcoin or do they anchor back to the music? I would think they would anchor back to the music. Yeah, I would think so too. So then that would imply a layer three. Correct. Yeah. And I would definitely think it's fair to call that layer three. Okay. Um, the other breakthrough sort of realization that I had was the lightning network. So you can imagine very quickly, you can think, oh my God, there's this is getting too fractured. There are too many networks and there. How do I seamlessly interoperate between them? Well, it turns out that the Lightning Network interoperates across blockchains. That's a really powerful, powerful, that's an incredible tool. It's it, it's a really powerful realization because what the Lightning Network does is the Lightning Network trades signed transactions. All it is is people signing, a, signing essentially a contract and saying, I agree. There is nothing about the way the Lightning Network is designed that says those contracts have to be on the same blockchain, period. In point of fact, you could actually create a Lightning Network that binds Litecoin to Bitcoin. There's nothing technically keeping you from doing it. Economically, I don't know why anybody would do it because the value of Litecoin floats relative to Bitcoin. So I would, why would anyone want to lock that in? But from a technical standpoint, it can be done because the Lightning Network node merely has to be synced to both blockchains 
and then it can exchange signed transactions between the two of them. So in this idea that we bring on more users, we scale by moving over to side chains, Lightning Network, which is meant to be for high-capacity, low-value microtransactions, can interrupt between them utterly invisibly and seamlessly. So this sort of vision that I'm projecting out is the, the holy grail of how we solve all scaling problems has a lot of technical development. It will take years to bring this to light and realized. And a lot of people are impatient today. They want scaling now. I want scaling right now. And my metaphor for that is essentially this. It's like we've all been given a goose that lays golden eggs. It's called Bitcoin. Many people have already made a lot of money with Bitcoin and hope to make more money in the future. I've done very well with my Bitcoin investments. And it's like people want to have a drumstick. They want to eat that leg right now. And it's like, if you would just be patient and wait longer and let it grow, it will continue to lay golden eggs for, for as far as you want. But in this rush to scale on chain, we are risking losing the entire network. We can't undo that. If we go to 20 megabyte blocks and now the only people running nodes are in data centers and then governments of the world start saying everybody who's in a data center must implement whitelists or you're going to go to jail. Everybody's going to implement whitelists because they don't want to go to jail. I mean, that is the path we're heading towards. And I don't mean to be alarmist in the one sense. I'm not saying that'll happen with two megabyte blocks or four. But as you move down, as you make that block size bigger, that's the direction you're headed. That's the path you're on. And that's where you, you end up. And we already have too much centralization already. We don't have enough nodes today. We have too much mining centralization. But making that situation worse is not path we want to go down. Well, the path that we're on right now is one where we're forcing centralization to happen at the company level. So where before, if you have, again, so I see two different directions happening here, one of which, you know, Ethereum is going down, right, where you have basically everything on blockchain, and that has its own set of problems. And then with Bitcoin, as we see usage of the blockchain going up, it's pushing companies like mine into developing solutions that use Bitcoin basically as little as possible in the places where it provides the absolute most amount of value, because otherwise it doesn't make sense and it's not going to it's not going to work. I mean, we don't even deal with things that are less valuable than, you know, like a dollar per transaction. And it still just makes a ton of sense to do the vast majority of stuff off blockchain and just kind of anchoring back in or using it as like a validating post. So, I mean, like that's so so is is that the vision of, of Bitcoin? Is Bitcoin just like a, a global reference that, you know, high value projects will check in against and occasionally validate? Like is Factum the future of Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm spinning out is a notion that going forward, the Bitcoin is like the Fort Knox of digital currencies. It's where the primary store of value is kept, maintained and secured safely. And all smaller transactions, petty transactions happen elsewhere. You limit what happens on chain. And we hopefully could do this in a way that's seamless and a good experience for everyone. But I can't promise that exists today, but I see the technology exists that it could happen. Uh, and I think that time spent trying to make a fork would be better invested making a side chain. And then let's look at the question. There's people who will tell you, I've done the experiments. 20 megabyte blocks are totally fine. No problem. Well, why would you do that experiment on the live network? Do it on a side chain or an altcoin, and I prefer it to be on a side chain, but I just am, I, I'm, I'm being very, very conservative. I'm very concerned, and I, I'm not certain enough people realize the risk that's involved. Okay, so so with regard to the 20 megabyte blocks, I'm intentionally not challenging you on that. I'm intentionally not challenging you on even two megabyte blocks or even really talking about that. I understand the slippery slope argument. I frankly disagree with it at this point. I think that the it's just a question of what we're trying to do if we're trying to make bitcoin into this thing that is this essentially digital gold and literally that is what it is and that is its only purpose and nobody was going to going to use it for anything else then fundamentally i think that's not what it's been billed as for a, a very long time 
And so if this has been the vision all along, then I agree with you. It's been very kind of poorly articulated because it means that just like gold, very, 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 very few people will have it. And the only people who actually use it in day-to-day commerce are going to be large businesses that use it as a component of their business, but it actually has really no peer-to-peer value besides that. Right. And and so that's that's correct and that's valid. However, if you build an additional layer that derives its value from the first layer, that other layer is Bitcoin. It's not something that's not Bitcoin. You've expanded the definition of Bitcoin. You've improved the network. It now is both digital gold and whatever properties you gain from additional layers. Those things are all Bitcoin. But that's not that's not true because Bitcoin is valuable in large part because of the extraordinary amount of security that goes into it. So if you're saying, well, you keep the token, you can keep using the token, you can't create it, you can't incentivize people with it, and uh, you have to figure out security as an entirely outside mechanic, then that again means that people who don't have these business cases that can pay for the blockchain don't have the use of a blockchain because they can't incentivize the use. Well, so there's two points to that. One, the Lightning Network has the same security model as the chain which it's bound to because it's it's using uh, funded right. it uses on-chain, on-chain to yeah right now in the case of a side chain yes it has a different security model but that's really i think everyone understands intuitively that you have a different level of security for ten thousand dollars than you do for a hundred dollars you walk around with a hundred dollars in your wallet you won't walk around with ten thousand dollars in your wallet you know how unsafe that is yeah but the the advantage of much of the advantage of bitcoin to this point Point, and of many of these cryptocurrencies is that it doesn't have to be about you in order for you to get it, right? That's the advantage for people who are disenfranchised is that because it's not about them, because it's about the entirety of the network and they're just a very small part in it, then, I mean, basically what we're saying is to be that very small part, if you want to be on a secure network, it's just going to get proportionally more expensive. So maybe it's just been real unrealistic all along. Maybe people have been, I mean, like people have been getting something that they're not paying for. And you're just saying that that's unsustainable and people have to pay for it if they want to retain getting that. But it seems like that's, again, a major value proposition is that the more generalized your blockchain is in terms of its use, the the harder it is to target because the larger, uh, a dis- you know, an unaffected group of people or uh, you know, uh, unrelated group of people is affected by it. Yeah, I mean, so I agree with that statement that people were not being realistic. We were told for a long time that scaling's not a problem. We can just bump the block size when we need to. And I don't think it was realistic. Maybe big block guys who really want to do big blocks are right. And we can do much larger block sizes and it's totally not a problem and it won't break anything. I Maybe that is true, but I just don't want that experiment done on the live blockchain. Let's do that experiment somewhere else and prove that it works. And maybe that's what their attempts to make a fork are. Maybe that's what they're trying to do. Right. I mean, like, what what is your particular um, argument against just creating another one? Because it seems like if, you know, it seems like we certainly have the capacity to have both experiments going on at once and the market can basically decide. I mean, I'm not saying that Ethereum and ETC was a great decision necessarily, but that had more to do with the implementation of the breakaway rather than, you know, the fundamentals of the situation. Like, it's become kind of a political issue, but like, it's actually quite interesting. And I think we'll be over time to see how these uh, parallel experiments continue to express. And it doesn't seem like that would be dramatically negative. I mean, unless you're purely concerned with valuation of Bitcoin. But as far as like having both experiments going on at once, there doesn't seem to be a downside since there's such disagreement. And it's not like the people who want these large blocks are going to turn and devote their effort to exactly the thing that they're arguing against. Yeah, people are free to do what they want to do. And if they want to launch a hard fork, they can and and let the market decide. My only concerns is I'm concerned that is going to create enormous confusion for the user base. It's going to be portrayed negatively in the press. It's going to create yet more fragmentation of the community. So I guess my effort in doing this podcast was to say, look, if we adopt this multi-layer approach, everyone can be on the same page and work towards the same goal and not be contra-purpose, vest your technical 
in technical resources, time, and energy towards creating, making these second layer systems a reality. And then we're all on the same bus. But as soon as you make a fork, you've created a different token. It's no longer Bitcoin. It's the fork token. And it's essentially pre-mined with everybody's tokens they had from the other network. I mean, they can do it and we'll let it see how it plays out. I would just rather those resources were better dedicated to the multiple layer approach. And, and that was kind of what I wanted to say. And and really, people are not going to agree with it. People will, will hear this and disagree. But there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there. A lot of people have wild ideas and there's a lot of bad blood. And all I'm trying to communicate is that the motivation of CORE and their current roadmap is one of conservatism and safety and protecting the blockchain. And then you may very well have summarized it correct, is we were promised something that couldn't be delivered safely, which is a worldwide global payment network that cannot be touched by the state or shut down by the state. And it has limitations because if it grows too big, it increases its attack profile. That is where they're coming from. You don't need to look for conspiracy theories or or anything else. It's just that's one view. And another view is, look, we think it's safe to raise the block size and these terrible things won't happen. Maybe, maybe. I, I just don't want it done on a live on the live network is my concern. So perhaps the fork experiment is the way forward. But if we do that, there's going to be so much bad press and so much confusion. And it's just going to be, I mean, anybody who looks at what happened to Ethereum in the last three months and thinks that's the model of the right way to do things, you and I don't don't agree. To me, that's just <laughs> a cluster. Anybody who looks at what happened, hey, that wasn't so bad. Let's do that. I'm like, yeah, it was really bad. Let's not do that. So I'm not a fan of the hard fork. I think that their energies could be better directed towards let's get a big block side chain. And if somebody does a big block side chain, let's say they do a big block side chain, it's got 20 megabyte blocks. It runs like it like, runs like crazy. It's awesome. It's phenomenal. Well, then those are lessons learned, which then can be folded back into the main chain. In other words, that's the way it should happen. Experimentation shouldn't happen on the main chain. Functionally, it's not any different to do it as a because if you're forking, you're not creating a new token anyways, as far as the allocation is concerned, the allocation like you get it for future miners. I guess that's the disadvantage is if you fork, then you would have miners being rewarded with bitcoins on that side chain for mining that block. Whereas if, if you do, do it with a side chain, you have to come up with an alternative scheme in order to. Uh, incentivize miners to secure your network because you are using the token from the other chain and have no token on your own chain. And like you said before, you could create a secondary token, but then that that's sort of the problem that we were talking about. Yeah, but is that a problem? I mean, you're creating a secondary token by creating a fork. You're assuming anybody wants that fork coin. I mean, I don't want that fork coin. You're just starting random. I mean, it is a pre-mine. You understand if you do a fork, you've just created an altcoin with a pre-mine. That's it. It's on a different network and it's not the same token. It's not Bitcoin. You can call it Bitcoin all you want. It's not Bitcoin. It's it's a different network and you've pre-mined it by transferring the, the record of the old blockchain. You've pre-allocated it to all these people. It's just an altcoin and why anybody would want to or get excited about firing up a new altcoin. The reason why they want to do it is they want they want it pre-mined. They've already got their Bitcoin. So they want, I, actually, I don't really know why they want it, but they can do the experiment. I mean, they're allowed to it's a permissionless environment but i I just keep coming back to i'd much rather see those energies i'd like everybody to sort of get on board this multi-layer approach the distance for us to get there is not far we can see how it can work as an engineer you can go yes that will work it's just you know, software engineering takes time. It's not going to happen overnight. It's, you know, the sort of let's be patient. And meanwhile, people have been clamoring for a short-term bump in transaction capacity, and that's happening with SegWit right now. So we already have a bump in transaction capacity coming on board very soon in the form of SegWit. Let's let that play out and see how people react. But as I sort of early in a conversation, I talked about that trade conference and the realization that if you create a secure, like on the level of Bitcoin network, secure blockchain that's public and global, that can do enormous amounts of transactions 
essentially for free, it will get consumed for non-economic use cases immediately. And that was very eye-opening to me because I didn't realize the demand was so strong. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of demand for non-monetary uses of uh, crypto tokens. That's been definitely something we've seen over the last year. Um, John, so are there any of these side chains that are starting up that are going to actually tackle any of these problems? I mean, if I wanted to, you know, work with you to work on an early side chain that would test some of this stuff out for some of the projects we're working on, is it something that could be done at this point? Personally, I, I work for NVIDIA Corporation. I have a really nice job and I work all day and then I spend time with my family and my dogs and my boat and my car. I am just not going to quit my job and go work on a side chain. This is not going to happen. So while I'm super enthusiastic about this, I'm not volunteering. Meanwhile, Roger Ver and others are talking about ponying up millions of dollars to do this fork. And I would simply ask, could you please just spend that million dollars? doing your experiment on a side chain first and we learn from that and maybe if you prove everything's going to go smooth as all get out we can incorporate those lessons learned there is already a side chain called elements and it's on github it's available for free and i have spoken to adam back and he made it very clear he is happy to assist anyone with firing up a clone of that side chain to begin to do these kinds of experiments he told me this personally and gave me permission to repeat it here so there you go so there already is a functioning side chain elements is a side chain dedicated to transferring bitcoin value between exchanges so that that doesn't happen on chain it's been running for a while i haven't heard any complaints about it it doesn't use proof of work it's what's called a a federated system, but that doesn't matter. When you're doing an experiment, you can experiment with whatever security model makes sense during the experimentation phase. So there's really nothing preventing anyone from just forking elements and start doing some experimentation. And if I didn't have a full-time job and I was retired, that's what I would be doing right now. So then just kind of wrapping things up, John, there's a short term bump coming with SegWit, which has some complication to it since everybody needs to kind of upgrade how they're doing transactions as a result of that in order to take advantage of the efficiencies. So what does the long term look like? Is Are we talking three to five years? Are we talking longer, shorter? So here's the interesting thing. Lightning Network is pretty freaking awesome. Lately, I don't even like to say Lightning Network. I like to say bi-directional payment panels because it's just a technology. Anybody can implement it and call it any anything they want. And there already have been multiple implementations of bi-directional payment channels announced by different companies and different vendors that aren't under the brand name Lightning Network. Those are going to begin to come online very soon. Blockchain Info just announced one they did. 21 Inc. announced one they did a few months ago. These are getting real close. The reason they haven't seen them in reality is they need SegWit to happen because SegWit fixes transaction ability. And once transaction malleability is fixed, so that when you get a transaction ID, that's its transaction ID period and nobody can spoof it, you can then begin to build these payment channels on top of it. Payment channels are going to happen sooner than side chains. Payment channels actually exist today. They already exist, but people aren't using them because you can't fire up your mycelium wallet and send something, right? So the larger blocking item isn't whether bi-directional payment channels exist or not. It's how well are they integrated into our, our existing infrastructure. They're going to come first and they provide immediate scaling for low value payments. So I see that happening in the next year timeframe. We're going to see announcements of various systems. One after the other after the other we'll see more wallets begin to integrate it that is huge huge help in the scaling effort and then the problem i've had and reiterated in the past is even if you move 100 of low value payments to payment channels let's say everything ten dollars or less it still requires that you have access to the main network to open and close channels so it will provide scaling and it'll be substantial, maybe 5x scaling, maybe even 10x scaling, but it doesn't provide 100x, 1000x. So I am of the opinion, longer term, if we envision a future where 100 million people, a billion people are using Bitcoin, those billion people are not going to be ha have channels open on the main chain. So they will have channels open on secondary chains. So that's the, that's the way I see it. I see in the short-term SegWit, which provides an increase, 
payment channels, which as soon as some wallets can start to support them, will provide some relief. And then after that, side chains. And I, it's not a one, it's not a single thing that solves this. It's a it's a it's a infrastructure that we're gonna build all together, working together in synergy. So that's the path I see forward. And I think this, oh, let's just make the block size bigger and don't worry about it. That provides you some immediate short-term relief. If you make a lot of block size increase and it's super cheap, it'll get flooded with garbage and i don't know what that's going to solve long term it's it's a nice feel good we made ourselves feel good right now and we've made the network more vulnerable to the state so i don't think that's the right way forward i'd rather we focus on the path we're on now i think the roadmap that core has put forward is the safest way forward and i don't think it has to do with any conspiracy theories or anything else it has to do with a an extreme level of conservatism and concern about keeping the core network safe so the short term and the long term yes but there's a medium term you're saying that the that raising the block size at all is essentially a feel-good fix that does nothing about the long-term problem and I would say that that sort of makes it look like a binary choice when it's not. Uh, it's that we could do both, frankly, and you could have both. And they don't need to step on each other at all. The concern and the reason why they don't want to do both is because of the slippery slope argument that you've made, which, again, there's validity to that. Because, But but again, it's a, it's a fear, uncertainty, and doubt type of argument rather than one that has much basis in reality. And again, it just doesn't really recognize the pressure that... Uh, this is forcing kind of on a lot of anybody trying to do anything on chain. It's very difficult. And the primary issue isn't the cost. It's the unpredictability of full block. Right. Well, so I have a response for that because I used to be in the camp of my view six months ago, a year ago was I think we should increase the block size immediately to address our short-term problems, not by much, two megabytes. And I've been saying that for a long time, and I wish we had done that. Now I no longer think that matters because SegWit finally seems close to ready to go, which is close to a two megabyte increase. And Core's argument, whether it holds merit or not, but Core's answer for that is, why would we increase the space for malleable transactions. In other words, malleable transactions are a negative force on the network. We want to discourage them. SegWit solves it. When everybody's using SegWit, we will no longer have these transactions which can be malled. So their argument is that it's in order of operations. Like, let's not increase the base box size until we fix this damn transaction malleability problem, which has been harassing us forever. My original point of view was, let's do a short-term block size increase immediately. But that feels like water under the bridge to me now. And their argument is, why would we increase the block size now when we also have transaction malleability fixed? So that's kind of their point of view. I've always felt that there should have been a block size increase, a modest one, as a sense of compromise. There's been a militant stance on the part of members of core that has used this what you call in a straw man which is fear uncertainty doubt they've been very militant about it and i've now spoken to them and their militancy seems to be the you know largely this the slippery slope argument so i can go kind of both ways on it but now segwit's almost ready to go and it gives us a substantial increase in transaction capacity so i'd kind of like to see it play out but it's just a question of who gets the resources and that's the thing with, with all of this stuff. Well, I don't know if I accomplished it or I came across well, but my goal was I want people to get off the conspiracy theory stuff. It's just different people have different perceptions of, of risk. Yeah, that came through. I would like to see people try side chains, but I sounds like this hard fork thing is going to happen. And I just think it's going to be ugly for the for us. I don't, I'm not looking forward to all those stories that are going to come out bitcoin civil war and it's going to be awful i mean it's going to be a huge price correction you have to look at it from the perspective of the people who are on the other side of it and to be perfectly clear i don't know anything about this attempt to fork i don't care about it i'm you know we've just developed solutions to make it so that this isn't much of a problem for us we essentially have an off-chain layer that 
uh, abstracts away on-chain confirmation times. And because of our use cases, which are based around access tokens, which is to say tokens that you get the benefit from possessing, uh, like a uh, database chit that's stored in uh, the distributed ledger as opposed to being stored in your local system. So in those cases, we don't actually need to make things spendable. So we can abstract the confirmation times, give people instant access to whatever it is that we're dealing with, and uh, and then just you know trust and verify later based on blockchain confirmations. But from the user's perspective, it completely abstracts away the problem. So you don't own any substantial position in Bitcoin? Oh, no, I, I own Bitcoin. I'm sorry, what... what? I think we must have gotten off track here. Well, it sounded like you said, I don't really care. And I'm like, that's why I care. I I have a big investment in Bitcoin. And I think this hard fork will really make me lose a lot of money (laughs) because it's going to be a disaster. I mean, like these problems come up every time we hit up against these uh, limitations, though. I mean, that that's the thing is that the it's it's a bad story to do this, but it's also a bad story to continuously have capacity problems. And I don't think SegWit's going to fix that. I think SegWit is a very small band-aid on, as you said, you know, the demand is there. Right, but a two megabyte block size increase was going to be a band-aid too, which was all everybody was asking for. Right, exactly. But it was a band-aid at a time when the need wasn't so, I mean, where we hadn't already been bumping up against it. And again, it's not the fees or anything. If it was just fees, then that'd be fine because then you could just pay more. But it's the unpredictability of full blocks and how things stop being in order anymore once you've got a big backlog. Yeah, I don't know how as demand seems, the problem is the demand on the network is so massive. What block size do you set that you're now above demand? It it seems like the demand is almost exponential at this point for cheap transactions. The point is they don't need to be cheap. (laughs) They, They don't need to be cheap. You just need to have more of them and it needs to be predictable. It needs to be there's enough capacity within the network that you can deal with that stuff that comes along when there are spikes or that spikes can rather than lasting two days, which is what happens now. You know, it lasts a half hour because you actually have the bandwidth capacity to deal with it. Where right now we don't. But fees fees are how we gate the number of transactions is making it more expensive. So if you increase the block size to say 20 megabytes, how do the fees increase until the 20 megabytes is full? In other words, fees increase once it reaches capacity. Because when it's below capacity, well, it's cheap unless miners start arbitrarily picking minimum fees they will accept. Yeah, but the counter to that is how do you justify anyone paying higher fees when they know that it's not actually going to get them a better place in line? It might get them a better place in line, but it's like buying a lottery ticket. Right. Because again, it's it's not paying attention to fees as far as the order of what's included. So I I think the the fee mechanic fundamentally doesn't work right now because buying a fee, paying for the thing, paying a higher fee doesn't actually guarantee you anything. It just gives you a slightly greater chance. Well, that's what RBF was supposed to do, was turn it into an actual auction house. Yeah. Which, so Yeah, I mean, there are definitely other solutions out there, but I mean, like, that's the thing is like, in in the medium term and the long term, I agree with you. I think that these are good solutions, but in the short term, basically what it's doing is it's mandating that you can't do anything serious with it. It's mandating that. And and so again, like that's why the idea of having multiple blockchains, regardless of the effect of the, on the value, like I, you know, <laughs> you know, the value certainly would affect me, but the most effective thing that I am looking for is a functional network that can perform the role, can get the job done and can act in a predictable way that you can actually build these layers on top of. And right now we don't have that. That's what I whole started with. We had a side chain dedicated to that profile. It it would address it, right? It would be the same token, not a different token. So, But you're also saying when I asked you if we could do that, you also said that you know it's years away before you could have a side chain to do that sort of thing. It's just an altcoin, so I don't see why it would be. Yeah, I don't know that it, it would be years till BitPay supported it and Coinbase supported it and every wallet supported it. It's this whole, we need this giant infrastructure uh, to, to be able to, I guess what I was thinking about is, remember I said, you can do it, it'll be completely seamless and invisible. That's probably what'll take years to be seamless and invisible. But if I open up a new network, you can do that in a week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. A big thanks to John Radcliffe for today's show. We had a lot of fun. This episode was hosted by Stephanie Murphy and Adam B. Levine. Music for the show was promoted by Jared Rubens, and this episode was edited by the incomparable Matthew Zipkin. If you've got the expertise and desire, I'm looking for people interested in working with me to launch a side chain to test this use case. You can contact me at adam at tokenly.com. And finally, the magic word for today's show is ARM. That's A-R-M. ARM. 
You've got until the 29th of September to visit letstalkbitcoin.com and enter it for your share of the listener rewards. See you next week.